0: Now we're gonna start off with a test. I'm gonna put four names of presidents on the screen. You're gonna have five seconds to put them in order based off the year they served their term as president. And ready, go. And stop. Now the answers you should have gotten was George Washington, Millard Fillmore, Andrew Johnson, and John F. Kennedy. Now you're probably thinking, what does this have to do with anything? So today's topic is stress. Now, am I really concerned if you knew the answers to that question not really you might have not even known some of the names up there how many of you leaving the comments knew all four names let alone what years they served now if you're not from america you may not even know any of those names but the point wasn't your knowledge base obviously i talk about mental performance brain training things of that nature but i wasn't worried about that in this case i was worried about how did it affect you now i only gave you five seconds so that alone wasn't a lot of time that could have made you a little worried thinking is that enough time to even figure out what order to put them because you might have known let's say you didn't know the answers and you just didn't have enough time and it made you kind of forget this is what stress does so that's what i'm really looking for and we're going to talk about stress today and we're going to go over not just what stress is but also how it affects us physiologically psychologically how it can change different things in our perception, how to deal with it and to use it to our advantage because a lot of times stress gets a bad name. And as you see, if you did freak out, granted, there is no stakes involved at all. I I teach and my students, I do something similar with them in my class. They freak out when I do this with them. And the thing is they know the subject. They've been taught it over probably five or six weeks is usually when I do that chapter and they freak out. So the goal isn't to be all-knowing, is to be able to get rid of stress. We're gonna learn how to accompany it in our day-to-day lives because it's something we can't get rid of. It has to be there and it's just a matter of how do you deal with it and how do you utilize it to be productive with stress. So with that being said, let's get into it. Now, what comes to mind when you hear the term stress? Typically people think of stress, they think of rush hour, traffic, bumper to bumper. Think about a, a tough deadline they'd have to meet or some kind of responsibility that's really making them feel worried or even anxious to some extent. But simply put, stress is just anything that changes your body's balance or homeostasis. So if I told you, stand up, go on, stand up, now sit back down. That's stress, because even though we didn't put a, an immense amount of pressure or any strain on you or your body, it changed what you were doing. So if you're sitting comfortably watching this video, just chilling, you weren't doing that anymore. And now you had to get up. Granted, you're probably in decent shape, so your heart rate probably didn't spike up, but it did change it a little bit. And homeostasis that word I used before is the body's balance or equilibrium. That's where your body wants to be optimally at all times. Now your brain does a pretty good job of keeping that going because if it didn't, you would not be alive right now. Now you hear the term equilibrium, You you think about things such as regulating uh, body temperature, uh, how your body processes and metabolizes foods, energy, um, metabolism. All these things are what contributes to keeping us alive and keep going at a regular pace. And it's very optimal to do this because your body needs to have that consistency so it can function the way it does and keep you going. And what stress does. It disrupts this balance. And like I said, it's not necessarily a good or bad thing. I would say it's amoral, meaning it's neither. It's the perception we add to it. And we'll get more into what that even entails later on. But at the end of the day, stress is just something that's there. And it's the change of this system. Now, the question you might ask is what exactly happens if I just screamed out of nowhere, I might have just freaked you out. And once again, it may not have done anything or may have startled you, but it changed the body's equilibrium. If it startled you, your heart rate might've went up a few beats per minute. If it did nothing to you, you're properly acclimated to just random noises and and sounds, great. And that goes kind of into stress as well. The unknown, being able to cope with things is a lot about how do we deal with things that aren't expected. Usually when we reach that high level of worry, or pressure or anxiety, it's because we don't know what's to come, what's expected, and this could be a a very huge problem. Now, let's get back to stress in itself. Now, let's talk about a guy named Hans Selye. Now, this is not where the stress conversation starts, and it's definitely not where it ends, but he was a, a Hungarian endocrinologist, And he was one of the early pioneers on the study of how stress affects us. His primary work was seeing how illness was affecting different people from chronic stress and other ailments. And he noticed that they all had similar symptoms. He saw that once they were exposed to some type of stimuli or in this case, sickness, cold, whatever it may be, there'd be different stages. And he called this the stress response or general adaptation syndrome or GAS for short. Now, what this means is, is how our bodies physiologically adapt to be presented with a different stressor. Now, if that stressor, for example, was a sickness, there's different stages you would go through. Now, these three stages that described gas was the alarm stage, the resistance stage, and the exhaustion stage. So if you're first exposed to this sickness, your body goes through the alarm stage. It's it's giving an inflammatory immune response to say, hey, what's going on? This is when we think about getting sick, we get a fever or something of that sort. Now, the alarm phase is just the first acclimation to said exposure to the stimulus. Now, over time, if you get exposed to it more than once, it's gonna subside a little bit. Now, this is what we call the resistance phase. So with the resistance phase, we're not as affected as we once were before. Even if we change the subject from sickness to exercise, it's kind of the same thing. We're talking about lifting weights or going running, that first time you do it and you're super out of shape, you're sore. But after you do it a few days, few weeks, few months, that same exposure to that same distance running or intensity or the same amount of weight you lifted isn't really gonna do it for you anymore. And this is why you adapt. And the exhaustion phase is when you go too far and the stimulus is, no longer gonna do anything in the case of sickness or overtraining for physical exercise could be detrimental or even deadly, depending on how far you go. So this just shows you there's always a correct amount because it always comes down to dosage. So stress is not just necessarily good or bad, amoral, it's about intensity, frequency, dosage, because how much stress you're exposed is gonna dictate how you overcome. Now, going back to what stress is, that's just an overview of how Hans Selye kind of coined this term stress for a little history lesson. But let's look at what he also coined as distress and eustress. So distress is typical we think about when we hear the term stress. This is that bumper to bumper traffic. That's that baby crying in the background while you're trying to focus. This is you being late for work. This is that hard deadline you gotta make. That's usually what we think of when we think of distress. But what about stresses that make us better. These stressors are called eustress. Now, these make us better or more productive because even though they bring more challenge, more worry, more responsibility, they usually give us something more productive afterwards. So think about something like getting a new job or even better, getting a promotion at your current job to make more money. Yes, you have to do more hours, a little bit more responsibility, you might have to manage a team now, but guess what, you get paid more And this is definitely going to help because more money, you can get more things. But you can even argue that could be a de-stress because the great and notorious B.I.G. said more money, more problems. But that's perception, right? So, you stress and distress. You can think about things such as getting married, having a baby. Now, some may argue it goes down to what you perceive these stresses are because you could say that marriage is a good thing because now you have someone to spend your life with, someone to share (laughs) expensive, you're going back to the money thing. Or depending on how you look at it, maybe the old ball and chain, as they call it, is bringing you down and you might end up in a divorce. And that's definitely distress. But the goal is how does this stress affect you? Distress typically has negative implications. If you lose your job, you lose your money and it can lead to other things, losing your house, your well-being. Or if someone close to you or something happens negative, like, say, a passing of a loved one, typically a negative feeling. But depending on your spiritual beliefs, maybe you can interpret that as a more beneficial thing, depending on what they were going through. Maybe you think that they're in a better place. So therefore, the distress is short-lived and you overcome it, all right? So stress, as you see, is not a one-size-fits-all, and it's not just simply what's going to worry me today. But what's happening when we get stress? Well, let's take a little trip back to ancient times. Always use a term, there's no more saber-toothed tigers. And this plays a big role on why we stress, because while we adapted throughout human history to survive, and there's many things in place to help us with that internally, we don't have as many, maybe we do, depending on how you look at it, but as many imminent stressors or dangers that we used to have back in ancient times, even up to the last hundred years. But yet we still are wired for it. And if you go back to that time, let's say we go back 10,000 years ago, stress was very important. So let's say you're on the savanna, looking for berries. Now, you're walking along and about 30, 40 yards away, you see a bush kind of trembling, shaking, making shh sound. Now you stop. Immediately, you freeze and think, what is that? Your heart rate's increasing rapidly. You're starting to breathe a little bit faster. Things are getting a little more easier to hear around your direct circle you can see directly to this bush now your mind saying do I go near it and think it's just the wind there's nothing to worry about or is there something behind that I should be afraid of the fact that you're even alerted to this may have just saved your life but the beauty is we can perceive on where do we go or not go this is called the fight or flight response so what's happening here, your body's getting you prepared physiologically and mentally to get ready for what's about to happen next. We talk about worry, stress, anxiety. There's a physical form of that and there's a psychological. They both kind of play on each other, but they're dependent on how you're acclimated to said stressors will depend on how you do it. So let's say that you're a little more privy to these type of situations. So you walk a little bit closer. The bush shakes again, but it shakes in a pattern where you recognize that, wait a minute. The wind usually goes into more of a stream that's shaking erratically. And now you think there's something behind it. Then you walk the other way and all of a sudden there's a a gazelle that jumps out. Okay. Gazelle is not a a predatory animal, but you didn't want to risk it. This was able to help you in that situation. So when we talk about stress, worries, anxiety, we're literally wired to anticipate what's going to happen and to use cognition to see what might happen next and guess. We're able to guess along different thought patterns and processes based not only on the real-time moment using something called working memory, where we manipulate what we know in the real time, but also through long-term storage memory, we can use what we know from the past to help us make that decision. So going back to the stress response, so let's say you weren't so lucky and it wasn't just an antelope. Let's say it was a saber-toothed tiger, a smilodon, that's the scientific name. Now, let's say the smalodon starts pouncing towards you. Now, you're probably not going to do too much because the fastest modern human could run up to 27 miles per hour. That's Usain Bolt. Now, he's the fastest of the fastest. And the crazy enough thing is most uh, speed animals, they can go well over 40. So it's not much you can do because you're probably not using Bolt fast. You're lucky if you're hitting even 15 miles per hour. So running away may not do anything for you. But the thing is a lot of physical responses are happening right now. The first ones, as I mentioned, were you heard your hearing getting more acute, more precise because you're honing in on what that noise was. This is very important in the fight or flight response because if I can hear clearer, I can tune out any distractions. But the thing is this can go One of two ways, because sometimes you hone in on one perceived sound, but you may tune out a more important sound. So it depends. But let's say that sound you heard was the most important. There's nothing else going on. This is where that acute sharp hearing comes in handy. Also, your vision gets more acute. Pupils dilate so you can see a straight beeline across to where you need to see because whatever happens next needs to be in your your line of sight. But also the downside is your peripheral gets a little less attentive. Now, peripheral wasn't really meant to be the main source of vision, but it's able to see at least larger uh, amounts of objects going through the size of your eyes so you can make sense of what's happening. Also, your brain, you heard of endorphins, right? People talk about endorphins a lot or runner's high. And this kind of gets connotated away from the main reason because when you hear the word endorphins, the actual terms is endogenous morphine or endorphins. Now, the goal is pain relief. Now, I always use an analogy or an example of when you're like in a a football game and you hurt your ankle or basketball game, whatever it may be. If you're an athlete, you can relate to this and you land funny, but you keep playing. The game goes on for maybe another hour. And once you get done with the game, get home, get relaxed, settle in, the pain just attacks you. It's because endorphins are meant to keep you kind of numb. So you able to keep going. Because the name of the game with the fighter flight response is to keep you going from the energy standpoint as well as being resilient to pain. Because if I stop right now in the middle of that saber tooth tiger trying to chase me, regardless of how fast I am, I have no fighting chance now if I attend to the pain and the nociceptors that send the signal that I'm in pain are firing and I stop, I'm literally dead meat. So the name of the game is keep going. So endorphins is important in that sense. Also, we talk about different hormones, neurotransmitters, we can talk about cortisol, We talk about norepinephrine, epinephrine, because when we talk about fight or flight, we hear about the heart rate increasing, the blood vessels constricting, the respiratory rate getting faster because you're taking in more oxygen, pumping more blood, the spleen is generating more red blood cells so it can carry the oxygen to the working muscles so you can keep going or take on the threat. So we talk about epinephrine or norepinephrine, also known as adrenaline and noradrenaline. So these things are helping with the heart rate increasing as well as the blood vessels being able to allow for blood cells to flow more rapidly and efficiently to the working extremities, your peripheral nervous system. Because at this point in time, when you talk about the, the, the cortisol, that's a, a hormone that breaks down tissue to provide glucose so you can have more energy to operate because in this point in time we need to be able to keep going i'm keep putting that point in keep going because stopping can mean a lot of negative things t- to occur um also we're talking about the uh uh sphincter muscles relaxing as well now you've heard of someone being scared they they urinate on their cells to defecate this is a result because in that moment the digestive system's kind of shutting down because the energy needs to be allocated. Because when people talk about metabolism, they don't realize digestion takes energy too. To break down the food so it can be utilized in your body. So when these things are happening, they're not really as beneficial in the moment. But the thing with the stress response or fight or flight response back then when there was ancient times is it was expected to be a quick, acute occurrence. Few minutes. So once it's done, you find shelter. You calm down. You're parasympathetic nervous system takes over. Because there's the parasympathetic and sympathetic. Sympathetic gets you ready for action. That's what ignites this stress response, this fight or flight response. While the parasympathetic brings everything back down to regulation. Think like paradise. So we want to get back to that parasympathetic response and get everything back down to baseline or homeostasis. But the problem is, we fast forward to modern times, we worry about a lot of things that aren't as relevant as much. Now, using those stressors back then, you had to worry about neighboring tribes that are trying to kill you because you're battling over resources. Uh, We lived in about groups of 50 to 100 back then when we were hunter-gatherers, so there wasn't always enough resources for everybody and not everyone was friendly, hunky-dory. I know the Flintstones may paint a different picture, but there was enemies. Since the beginning of time, there has been different oppositions, peace, war, a whole other topic, but these are things we had to worry about. So if you went to the wrong territory and you didn't realize it, you could be a victim of another tribe trying to kill you or take you prisoner, depending on what their intentions were. Also, the weather. We didn't have the convenience of the domiciles, housing, things we have now for security. So that was a danger. That was a threat. Also, food in itself, being short on it. You have to stress over, am I going to get food. We didn't have convenience stores, Walmart, Amazon, Prime, these type of things that can deliver groceries right to your front door, or you just drive there real quick and get them. So these were real imminent dangers or threats or worries that were almost every day, but they came in spurts. But now we perceive them more. In modern times, we flip on a switch. Think of like the stress response as a switch we flip on, and once the, the imminent danger, the perceived imminent danger is done, we flip it off. But now we anticipate things that may or may not even happen our imaginations create scenarios create things that may not occur but we paint this picture because that's the beauty of it like i said when the the ten thousand years ago when you perceive was there something behind that bush you can play out different scenarios and then you took care of it and went about your day but now we flip that switch on we play out these scenarios We leave that window open, create another scenario, leave that window open. We create another scenario until the point is we have like 20 tabs, 30 tabs open on what we call our brain. And now that that stress response is happening when there isn't actually something going on. And the sad part is we don't turn it off. So those cortisol, the the fight or flight response, all these these neurotransmitter hormones are going haywire, but you don't need them. So that physiological response is breaking down immune tissue. It's breaking down muscle tissue, making you weaker physiologically, and also is making you more tense, more stressed, more worried psychologically. So it's continuously breaking you down when you don't need it. And guess what? When you do need it, you're more worn out. That's something we call allostasis when we get to the point that we're so so worn down that it breaks down our already uh, sustained tissue to give us more energy because like, we can't take no more from the actual stored glucose or glycogen or fat, whatever it may be. We need to go to the muscle tissue, things that we might consider Sacrificable to the cause of keeping you going because now it's like, Hey, we need the stress. We need to worry, but you don't have too much to, to run on. So the allostasis allows you to at least adapt to that. But the, the downside is it's going to take its toll. We think about things like overtraining and exercise. That's what this is. People are worrying all the time. That's what this is. It's you going beyond your baseline of what you need to sustain. It has to come from somewhere. It's going to be, Oh, just kind of like an overdraft in the bank. Now, if we think about stress from a personality standpoint, are there more people that are more prone to stress? Yes. Uh, stress is not necessarily a character trait of someone, but it is something someone can inherit. And that's why I keep using the word perception because when people perceive a stressor or something that makes them worried or anxious, they sometimes internalize it and it becomes them in their in their head at least. So someone who's high-strung, a high-worrier if we talk about personality measures, this is someone that's high on something called neuroticism or emotionality is the more uh, common term now. So someone who's high on emotionality is way more prone to stress because they internalize stress or things out of there can control as something that's inherent just to just them. So instead of like, OK, I'm not ready for what's about to happen. I'm unprepared. This is because I just overall not a prepared person and I, I suck. But this is not the case sometimes Sometimes you gotta understand that Things just not in your control And you are not able to accommodate it But basically these people don't do that They're worried, they're anxious They'll think that a, a dangerous storm Is something they have to worry about Not because it's a dangerous storm But because are they prepared enough They can get all the supplies They can get everything they need All the resources But still feel stressed and worried Because they want to control And you can't control mother nature, right? These are also people who if they lose, they take it as a shot to their self. They think, oh, if I lost, it has to be because of me. Obviously, there is a level of control that you do play in any loss or victory, but when you get to the point where it's 100% one way or another, that's a problem. We have to be able to know that it's flexible how we're able to internalize things that happen to us. This is something called locus of control. Now, when we talk about locus of control in psychology, you think of like a spectrum. On one side, is internal locus. On the other side, it's external locus. You're always gonna range on one side or the other because it's never 100% your control, but it's never 100% out of your control. So if you look at it as, okay, if I'm late for work, the internal side is what time did you wake up? If you woke up at a very timely manner, an hour or so before you had to be to work, maybe it's not completely on you if you were late. Now let's look at the external. What was traffic like? If it's a traffic jam for 10 miles, stop and go, barely any movement, you can't do anything about that. Now, later on, you can take in consideration, okay, every Tuesday around this time, I know I have to be at work at this time, maybe I should leave, maybe another 30 minutes earlier because it's typically like this. Now, if it isn't, all good, you make it on time or you're a little bit early, but if it is, you accommodate it and that's why people high on emotionality kind of overstress because while they do take too much themselves internally, they don't think that, hey, I can overcome this. It's not just limited to, oh, it's me because I'm late versus it's me, but I can accommodate myself and make provisions the best way I can. And this is kind of how you can talk about how stress can be utilized to your advantage. Now, we're gonna segue into that point of, we talk about different ways stress affects you too. We can look at something like the stress exposure model with um, James Driscoll. He was a psychologist at UCF, University of Central Florida, and he had a model where he described different aspects of when we stress, how it affects performance, and that's something I'm big on. In applied psychology, our goal is how do we make sense of these different concepts, not just in a research standpoint or even a neuroscience standpoint. We want to know how does it affect us in our day-to-day lives. So if you're going through a stressful moment or time, it makes relevant things clearer and it makes relevant things less clearer. So let's think about if I'm worrying, and stressing, you're going to start looking at different aspects of what's going on that doesn't even matter. If you're trying to pack up for a trip and you're worrying and stressing, you're going to start looking at, oh, I didn't bring this certain item that had nothing to do with your main items that you need to bring, such as clothes, um, your cell phone chargers. And then you end up forgetting certain things. And it's because the less relevant things became more important to you because now your brain's telling you worry. Think about this, think about that, and that doesn't really matter. Now, this kind of goes into the next one perfectly because the more cognitive load we put on ourselves, so stress can add to that cognitive load by worrying, so you're getting more items and more things to think about. So now it has less room to think about more pertinent, relevant information. Now, I mentioned something called working memory earlier. This is our brain's ability to take in short term information and figure out what to do with it and apply it to what we're doing in real time. So, if I'm taking in more unwanted information, that working memory load kind of gets full. So, I have less room for things that I need to do. Now, it also makes us attribute more negative traits to ourselves. If I lost the game, it's because I'm not a good player. If I failed the test, because I'm not a good student. We don't think about, well, did I study the right things? Did I study enough? Is it just something I didn't fully comprehend and I just need to work on more? So if you attribute these things solely to our personality, our perception of ourselves, our self-efficacy, our ability to do things, our confidence, we're gonna end up putting ourselves down, down the road and it's gonna reciprocate in other things we do. So stressing makes us more likely to internalize, defeat, losses, or failures. And speaking of how we internalize these losses of failure, it also turns up the volume on fear. We're more prone to take less chances because now we think, what if it happens again? I got so freaked out last time and choked at bat. Or I, I stressed out so much on my date, I didn't even say too much to her. Is going to make us scared that's going to happen again and again and again and it's building up this adaptation because remember homeostasis is balance and we talk about it in this standpoint psychologically what is our balance our equilibrium when it comes to how we perceive ourselves are we perceiving ourselves as these negative do no right people if so that's where we're going to be and we're going to keep becoming that and the last part of that is social influence We typically influence the others around us in a positive or negative way. It's not subjective to just one or the other. It could be both, but it depends on how you're interacting. If you're in a team setting, a workplace setting, something like that, and you're giving this stressful uh, energy to them, they might internalize it as, is he someone that should be on our team? Or if you're the leader or the boss, they might question your leadership skills now, and this could be very detrimental to the team's performance, job performance, and you yourself. Now, how do we go about using stress to help us like i said earlier stress is not something you want to get rid of because now that you understand that it's actually a part of everyday life and it actually is built to help us because if we're exposed a little bit of stress we adapt and get stronger but we have to do it in the right doses so the question shouldn't be how do i get rid of stress get it out of my life because self-help is really big on that getting things out of your life how to get rid of stress No, let's mitigate stress because if we mitigate it and and use it in a way that it can be advantageous, you expose yourself to stresses that are beneficial and productive, you stress, and you try to limit the distress that you know is going to be there, but you don't run away from it either or internalize it. You have to figure out what it is. So that's the perfect thing. What is your view on stress? Are you already knocking it as I can't do this, I can't worry? You're, You're tricking yourself. So That's the first thing you do. Figure out what stresses you. Where does it come from? Who does it come from? When does it come from? These all factors that can contribute to how you deal with stress. And if you can put those in a place where they can be utilized appropriately, you have a better chance of dealing with it versus trying to bottle it all up or just avoid it all Now, this goes into reframing. So there's things in psychology, like one of the most popular, I guess, CBT methods is the ABC method. And this one's used a lot because it's reframing how do you perceive said event. So if something that stresses you out or something happens that makes you worry, you have to think ABC. So A stands for activating event, B is for belief, and C is for consequence. So if you use an example of, let's say you're at the store and you see a a friend from work and... They're on the phone and you say, hey, how's it going? And since they're on the phone looking at whatever food at the store and they just kind of give you a nudge back and go back to what they were doing and keep talking. That's what happened. That's the activating event. they were on the phone. You say hello. They gave you a little nudge back and went about their life. But the belief, B, that's what you interpret. Do you interpret it as, okay, they were busy. I'll see them at work on Monday. No love lost. Or do you see it as, wow, that was rude. How dare they? I ain't hanging out with them no more after work or I'm not going to go on lunch break with them anymore. That's your belief and you're entitled to that. But you can see how one belief is more productive and beneficial to your mental well-being and how you handle stress and worries. Because if you automatically assume events of any kind are just someone's out to get you. A lot of people are predisposed for this negativity. Like I said, we're wired for negativity. It's an evolutionary trait that kept us alive and still does. But when we use it too much or we use it misplaced for the wrong reasons, now it's going to be a problem. So that's the belief. What do you see it as? Now, C is the consequence. That's how you continue to perceive this person or this, this activity or event after it happens. So if the consequence in this case is you think they're a horrible person, you don't want to be associated with them, so you stop talking to them, that's that's the way to do it. But think, are these the ways to handle things? Now, that was just an extreme example, but try to use that in things you've gone through recently. Does it apply? Did you look at the event the appropriate way or the best possible way? Or did you use it in a way that was detrimental and could actually ruin how you handled said situation? These are things to keep into consideration. Now, that kind of goes into the next point perfectly because I consider myself a very creative person. I love creating music, uh, writings, songs, content, you name it, creating tasks for my business with mind Body One. It doesn't matter. I just love creating. But creativity is not just limited to drawing and painting and things of that nature. Creativity is important because the more creative you are, the more you're able to see things in different lights. People always say keep an open mind or be open-minded, but what does that truly mean? Now, creativity in a general context is just being able to cre- connect a bunch of different points together. And I like to tell people, like, when I think about creativity, you think about point A, B, C, all the way to Z, there's no one stop. You had, to do a you had to do a lot of different locations before you got to that end result. Like, if we look at the first person to think about, hey, humans should fly. Let's go back thousands of years ago again. They saw a cliff and they said, hey, I'm going to jump off and soar and flap my arms like a bird. Now, if you understand aerodynamics, that's not how that works at all. We're too heavy and the ratio between flapping is not enough speed. So that person jumped to their death. So the group said, hey, that's not how you fly. We'll figure it out. So they said, hey, birds have wings. So they built wings, think like Icarus, the guy who flew too close to the sun. So the next person said, all right, this is gonna work now because we have bird-like wings that they made out of feathers from birds. They jump off the cliff this time and now, he died too, obviously, it didn't work because that's not how aerodynamics or physics goes. So they then say, okay, let's keep trying again and again. Numerous people had to die. Numerous things had to happen to lead up to the next events where people started making things like the, the hot air balloon. So it allowed us to kind of go in the air, but not necessarily fly. Then you fast forward to maybe the Wright brothers who the first official flight in 1903 in North Carolina, Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, and then that fast forward to world war one where flight became a, a game changer in how we fight wars and within 50 years we were on the moon see how creativity works it's just connecting all these different points so think about learning different tasks i tell this to people all the time i love learning not just because of the thirst of knowledge but it tells me hey if i know how this works it may be handy to something else because that collective of knowledge is not just to be like, I know everything, it's to say, my brain draws from its resources. We think about how our memories and, and creativity even works. it's just drawing from our actual brain resources, neurons firing from past things we've learned. And the more things you learn, that means you have more neuron connections, meaning you can be more creative. Now, bring this back full circle to how to handle stress if you need to paint those new scenarios in your head, it's not gonna happen just by thinking the way you've always thought. So by exposing yourself to more creative, more, more open ideas, you're actually actively working on engaging the brain and the neurons in ways that they've never been used before. And if you're able to do that, it makes it more susceptible to do with other things. So you're not always gonna see things cut and dry like you always do. Now you have the the ability to say, I remember when in 18 65 when this happened in history and it can apply to what you're doing or you can just draw from those resources it's just kind of like a court case lawyers their main job is to be able to understand the law first and foremost where they are but also draw from historical references of cases so they can apply them to help them win their case and isn't that what life really about applying different scenarios and making sense of them in real time so creativity go do something creative creative Uh, If it requires something you've never done ever, you can do that or just doing things that you know how to do, but trying them different ways. The simplest thing you could do is right now after this video, like, comment, subscribe, go to another one on a topic that you never heard about and learn it. Simple as that. So increase that creativity. Uh, Prioritization. So this goes back to when I talked about how we don't like the unexpected. We talk about homeostasis equilibrium. The brain likes balance for multiple reasons. But mostly because when it doesn't have to change, it doesn't have to work. Energy is not utilized. The brain is used for 20 to 25 percent of all metabolism, more than any other organ. So it makes sense why it doesn't have to do anything even less it has to. But the irony is, especially in modern times, we have to keep going to survive. So we kind of have to do it, but make sure you prioritize what you're doing and how you go about it. Now, going back to the unknown, we can't predict everything. Preparation does help and it can account for certain things, but you can't stop the unknown from happening. So when you prioritize, look at what is actually needed for what you're about to attempt, what you're about to do. Because if going back to the work uh, example, if I know I need to bring certain items or certain paperwork to the job, I can accommodate that. Now, whatever happens when I get there and if it goes awry, I couldn't accommodate that. I couldn't predict that, but at least I know I have the resources and I'm not just left there sitting there in the dark, not knowing what to do or not having enough of the things I need to execute. Another way to help manage stress and using stress to your advantage is welcoming it. Now, we said already that we need stress in doses, but not just the fact that we put ourselves in things that are challenging. We need to look at it as I'm already privy that it's gonna happen. I know it's coming, I'm ready for it, it is what it is. Because by this point, we know that it's going to happen, so there's no surprises here. It's not necessarily saying expect the worst or hope for the best type scenario, but more so, this is something that's going to happen, it's a part of life, deal with it. it. It may sound stoic or counterproductive, but this helps us acclimate even easier because if I know there's a chance that things may not work out, I at least know in my head that these efforts aren't my fault if they go wrong completely because I know there's a chance of what can happen. Mitigate your risk, understand what can go in, what can go out, and these will help you realize the best way to deal with what's coming. Now, the last thing I'll say is keep a positive mindset. Very cliche, I know, but once again, we're going into how the brain adapts to things. If you're always thinking the worst Guess what? Your brain gets primed for the worst. Negativity is innate. It helped us stay alive. Because if we thought right in something behind the bush, we live. If we thought wrong in something behind the bush, we die. So we're wired to expect that. But if you at least have a positive mindset that, hey, maybe there isn't that behind the bush. Because if you're wrong in that case and there's something beneficial, the berries are there, you're good. Because there's ways going back to mitigating risk, there's ways to go about the bush. You could throw a rock at it from a distance and see what jumps out. Now, if you have a safe enough distance, you might be okay. But the point is, it gives you a chance to figure it out without completely writing it off. Being positive doesn't even necessarily mean being happy go lucky, everything's sunshine and rainbow. It just means that there's a chance that the beneficial side could be an outcome too. Expect both. Not saying that. You favor one or the other, but expect what scenario goes down if it went the way you thought it was negatively or the way you didn't think it was positively and prepare for both. We're good at preparing for the worst. It's easy to prepare for the worst. We can think of 30 scenarios where it doesn't go right, but it's hard to think of one where it does. We think about Murphy's or anything can go wrong, will go wrong. Cool. Think about those things, but think about what could go right as well. Because what if you catch yourself in a situation where it does go right and you don't know what to do? So Stress. How do you feel right now? Are you stressed hearing me say all this? It's a lot to take in, I know, but it, and the thing is, it's still just the tip of the iceberg because stress doesn't stop with just how we think and process things. Like I mentioned with physical stress, working out is stress. And the thing about working out in stress is it helps us. So that's a stress. Uh, it could be a distress if you do too much or you hurt yourself. So won't go too much into that because we're going to talk about how exercise helps mental wellness and performance as well. So I'll leave that for another day. But I want to leave you with this. This is your homework for me. This is what I want you to do to break it down. I want you to go out today and try three things you've never done before. Don't matter how small, how big, you have to go do three things that you've never done before. If they have more worry factor, the better. If it's something that you're already kind of nervous or timid to do, the better. But don't go too, too far. Just make sure it's enough to get you ready and get your mind right. Thanks for letting me break it down.